Good morning, Christian Fellowship Church. Feels good to not have too much furniture between me and you. Uh, little by little progress, right? Uh, I want to invite you to pray with me as we dive into God's Word. You know, we pray for the offering. If you're new here, you're like, man, they pray a lot. They pray for this, pray for that. Yes, we're dependent on God to do what only God can do. And just listening to a sermon and going, got it, and then trying on our own, that's not going to work. So let's invite God specifically into this time of looking into His Word together. I hope you have your Bibles, whether it's a physical copy or an app, (laughs) Uh, uh, because we need to be in the text together. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are thankful to You that we have Your Word to look at, to read, to study, to grow in. And we pray that in the next few minutes as we... uh, Crack open your word, your scripture, that we would be um, alert to what it has to say and receptive to your work in us through what you say. And we understand that only you can do the work necessary for us to live what it says. Father, we depend on you. We ask you for grace and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're walking through Second Peter, so if we can turn to Second Peter, toward the very back of the Bible, just before the Book of Revelation, a little short letter Jude, just before that, Second Peter. And in preparing for this, I think about the. Uh, the landscape of Christianity, churches out there. A lot of you grew up Christian and you have an experience that leans more one way than another. Some of you have grown up in churches where uh, they talk about grace, sing about grace, and tell you it's grace, God has paid for it through Jesus Christ, and they minimize works, right? It's, it's about appreciating what God has done. And when you read a text, you, you go like, hey, Jesus took care of that, and we don't want to be legalists. Uh, and there are pastors, churches, that are afraid to preach works. We don't want to tell people do and don't because they're going to get confused and think that you have to earn your way to God and that the only reason God will ever love you is because you do certain things and don't do certain things. And we don't want to be that kind of church, they'll say. And so they don't really preach do's and don'ts and work and effort and that kind of thing. It's just grace only. But that leads to kind of an exhausting Christian life because you realize uh, if we just think, thank you God for saving me, and if we don't change our lives, we're still living lives that are a wreck. And when you live lives that are a train wreck, Christianity doesn't quite work. You know, like you come and you sing the songs and you understand grace, or you think you understand grace, and you hear grace preached, but it doesn't change your life. And if your life isn't changed, Christianity isn't really working for you. And if Christianity is not working for you, what's the point? So that leaves us in a mess. You've got other churches, other traditions, other pastors, other places, other families that lean the other way. Of course it's supposed to change your life, and they lean heavily into the do's and don'ts. And so they memorize the Ten Commandments, they read through the law, they, they, they talk about conduct, and they lean on it possibly to the point of performance, that God is displeased if you don't do certain things, and He is grieved when you don't do other things, and we are supposed to perform, and maybe that leads to its own kind of wreck 
where you do think the only way I can get to heaven is be a good person. And that's not right either. And throughout the history of the church, it's been really difficult to hold those two things together in tension. People, Christians tend to lean one way or the other. Super, super grace, super, super legalistic. I remember when I worked as an associate pastor at a Korean-American church, it was even generational, where the Korean immigrants that still held their services in Korean were very buttoned down. They came to church in suits, right? Very particular as to what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing. And then that second generation that were more comfortable doing things in English, that's the only reason why I was there, I don't speak Korean. They had an English service with that next generation, right? the kids of the immigrants, the mother congregation. And they were much more lax. The way they dress, the music they played, nothing wrong with one way or the other, right? But older generation, hymns, suits, buttoned down, legalistic, go to the best schools, right? The culture. And then the next generation is like very Americanized. They'd show up in jeans and sandals and whatever and you know, sing more contemporary music and a little bit more like, hey, we're free, and and a little swing the pendulum from the legalism, but sometimes a little too free, a little too presumptive of God's grace. So how do we strike that balance? I think the issue is we think it's one or the other. Either we live by grace or it's works. How do the two work together? And when you read the Bible, that's our problem not the Bible's problem. The Bible doesn't present them as contradictory. And it doesn't just present them as a paradox. And that's another problem. Well, it's a paradox. It's hard to understand. No, it's not. It's not a paradox. They don't just coexist. One produces the other. And where we make our mistake is when we inverse it. What, am I, what do I mean? Well, let's get into the passage. Second Peter, we covered the opening verses 1 and 2 last week where the the ground is leveled, right? You don't have super Christians and barely Christians. You don't have some Christians that are partially forgiven and some Christians that are totally forgiven. And I press that into application for today's world and culture where you see churches and denominations literally getting divided over equality. But Peter lays it down, even though I'm an apostle, I can still say that you, whoever is a believer and is reading this letter, You are on equal ground with me. So we know that entrance into this whole thing is based on this righteousness that is given to us by God. It's his righteousness that affords us this equal standing faith. Okay. Here's where we go off the rails. As a result of that, I can relax and be like, God afforded it for me. Great. I might mess up here and there and it's not a big deal. Error. Or other churches or other Christians might go, okay, he afforded us by faith, and now I've got to prove it and earn it and get in there myself. That's error. So what does he mean? What are we supposed to do as a result of this faith that has been afforded to us? Peter wants us to know, Peter wants us to know that God has given us what it takes to live godly lives. He's given us what it takes to live godly lives. Let me go ahead and read 3 all the way through 11. Get that text out in front of us. Let let Peter do his thing, and then we'll back up and just take it one piece at a time. 
Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ." You can easily <clears throat> pick out a phrase and use it to lean toward one of those extremes or the other, but you've got to take the entire chunk together. Peter is not concerned with rules of grammar and run-on sentences. He's just stacking stuff, man, for you to understand what this is about. And you've got to take it all uh, in one big bundle. But the point that he starts off with is God has given us what it takes to live a certain way. He's given us what it takes to live godly lives. What has He given us? Divine power. <laughs> Verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And I just want to camp out there for a second of just how that, amazing that is. Uh, many of you, if you've been Christian at all for any length of time, you realize it's hard. <laughs> it's difficult. Right? And you might just get real, you know, some, some of the guys that came back from the men's retreat, you might feel real pumped right now. And for the next couple of weeks, you want to read the Word, tremble at God's Word, right? We were charged to do that. In a couple of weeks, that might fizzle. Because we're up and down, we experience circumstances, we get discouraged, we feel like God is close, oops, then we feel like God is distant. Welcome to the club, read through the Psalms, where are you? Where are you, God? Read through the prophets, God, are you here? What's going on? Like, I wish I was like an Old Testament prophet you get to hear directly from God. Not all the time. Rarely. And when it happened, boom, it becomes a book. There's not that many books. Often God feels distant. Often God feels like he's testing you. We, and we encounter, encounter trials and suffering. And so this Christian life is really hard. And if you feel like, man, I must be some kind of lower tier Christian, because I, sometimes I wonder if I can make it. Sometimes I hear a sermon and I'm like, man, other people are like, amen. And I'm like, ah. Oh, I don't know if I could do that this week. That's normal. Otherwise, you wouldn't need 2 Peter. But 2 Peter's written because he knows Christians are often beleaguered, weary, tired. It is tough, and it is hard. Peter understands that. And so Peter is helping us understand you're not supposed to get by on your own strength. You're supposed to get by on strength that is given to you from somewhere else. What kind of strength? Divine strength. Divine power. And that's not magic. It's divine power, this 
God-like power is not to move things with your mind. It's, it's not to teleport. You know, this isn't, this isn't X-Men. What is this divine power, this power that God has, the kind of power that God has to speak a universe into existence? What's the power for you to keep going? It's the power for you to go, man, I know this sin is really tempting, and in my flesh I just want to do it. But I'm able to do it. And that little voice inside your head like, no, you can't. You don't have the power to do it. That's a lie if you're a believer. Because you have now been plugged into this grand power source that is limitless and sees no barriers, sees no walls. None of this, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, shattering all those categories because it's divine power, not a 12-step self-help power. This is completely different. And so Peter tells us you have this divine power, the power that God has to do things, speak things into existence, change things is the power to change you. And it has been granted to us all, not the elders, Billy Graham, <laughs> every single one of you that have, that have repented and trusted in Christ Jesus for salvation. It doesn't just get you in the door. It pushes you through the hall and out into the field and into the valleys and into the wilderness and it will get you home by God's divine power. God's divine power has been granted to us all and, uh, uh, granted to us all things. The all for all of us comes from the previous verse. We're all in equal standing. And then what is it granted to us? All things that pertain to life and godliness. Can you think of a category that doesn't fit that? Right, can we think like, well, I know that it, he grants us divine power for that, but I'm really struggling with this. No, all, all things. So we all have this equal standing. We've all been granted to us. This uh, divine power has been granted to all of us and for all things that pertain to life and godliness so that anything in your life that you're supposed to be godly in, God gives you the power to do that. It doesn't matter if your father did it, your grandfather did it, you're on the fifth generation of struggling with the same thing. You can break that wall because it has nothing to do with genetics. God's power can reverse that and conquer that. And some of us might have dispositions. Some people are, you know, drink and leave it alone, and other people drink and they can't not grab the next one. And we all might have certain Pensions, right, that make us lean one way or the other. Okay, that's fine. Don't use that as, a, as an excuse to say I'm powerless against this thing. You were powerless against that thing before you were granted this power that is outside of you, this divine power to conquer, to live a certain way. So that anything Scripture calls us to do or not do, call us to be and not be, we can do because of this power that's been granted to us. And how do we get that power? We get that power through knowledge. Not performance, not passing a test, not being a Christian for so long. There's none of this second blessing, third blessing, go hike to Mecca, you'll come down glowing. Do you know Christ? Yes, you got the power. Well, that's too easy, I know. <laughs> it would be impossible if it were left up to us. But because Christ accomplished it, we have access to this power source. It's through knowing Jesus Christ. And look at how he calls us. He calls us to 
varying levels of mediocrity. I'm not aware of that translation. He calls us to his glory and excellence. What should be your bar as a Christian? Excellence. That's not being a legalist. That's taking God at his word. The legalist wants excellence, and they want to get there by their own power. There's a difference. But we don't go, well, we don't have bars. We don't do measurements. We don't ask ourselves the question, how am I doing as a Christian? Because it's not about do, it's about done. No, Jesus got it done so that you can do. And what kind of bar should Jesus' own empowerment afford you? A medium bar, a low bar? No, excellence, glory. And so we don't want to think of this in tears. You know, the pastor should be excellent, but the rest of us, we can kind of hang out down here and and fool around. Well, no. And man, am I, am I glad that's true. If I had to be some other tier, I wouldn't be up here. I get tired. I get beleaguered. I struggle. But we don't make excuses for it. We pursue excellence, and we live up to this calling. He called us to this bar We don't get to invent lower bars. He called us to excellence and glory, his own glory. Who is it that told us you have to be perfect as the Father is perfect? An Old Testament prophet? Jesus said that. Like, Old Testament was so strict. Jesus came to soften things. Jesus raised the bar. You heard it said this. I'm telling you this. He makes it interior. He makes it harder, more difficult, more difficult uh, to discern, more subjective. He's like, yeah, well, that's perfection. Anybody could keep a law on the outside and fool everybody around them. What's going on inside your heart? That's what I'm after, and that's got to be perfect. And you're supposed to go, ah, how do I get there? That's why I'm here, Jesus is saying, to supply you with the divine power you need when you recognize, well, I can't do that. Great, that's first base. (laughs) Well, how do I do that? Well, Jesus came, second base. Well, how do I get that? Repent and believe. You're almost home. <laughs> right? Home is you realize that repentance and that belief, if it's true, is going to show up in my life a certain way. And it doesn't show up by going, ah, I can't do it. I tried for a week, but at least I got my ticket to heaven. God's going to just give me a pass. Careful. I might be a fake ticket. He tells us he gives us what we need to live a certain way, For all things, he gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This is available to all people of equal faith. Through knowledge, it's a relationship, not performance. But once you're in, you recognize it's a calling to something divine, glorious, and excellent. It continues in verse 4. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises... I'm going to get back to that in a second, but let's just push forward in the sentence, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now that trips some people up. If you ever are sitting down to lunch and someone's like, hey, you should leave your church and come to my church because we, we, we've got this right. And you're like, what do you mean? Unpack it. And they tell you, you, you can become gods. You can become, Jesus was just paving the way for all of it. Yeah, Jesus was God. They'll tell you, yeah, Jesus was God. I agree. You can be too. And then they'll take you to a verse like this. See, partake in the divine nature. Here's how you can stay just in this verse 
and prove them wrong. Peter tells you what he means by partaking in the divine nature. He doesn't mean you can have creative power to create worlds. He doesn't mean go outside and walk on water. He doesn't mean you have the power to forgive sins. Well, what does he mean? Well, he says it right there. Escaping corruption. Jesus said, be perfect as, the heavenly, as, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus didn't mean you can be God the Father. None of us think he meant that. What did Jesus mean? That you can be perfect as the heavenly Father is perfect. He means qualities. What theologians call communicable attributes. I mean, just your basic systematic theologian understands there are some attributes of God that are incommunicable. He doesn't communicate it to you, give it to you, share it with you, but then there are other attributes that he does. God is love. You should be loving. Right? Uh, God is unchanging. Well, we're constantly changing. I'm older now than I was two minutes ago. So some things are shared, some things aren't. Clearly, he doesn't mean everything that is an attribute of God is an attribute of you. What does he mean? He means... Things that are a part of corruption are not a part of you because that's been left in the past. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Being a partaker of the divine nature means being a partaker of holiness as opposed to corruption. And the good news is, he's telling you, past tense, you've escaped this. <laughs> you've escaped that, so don't live like you're still stuck back there. Live forward into this future that God is calling you into. <clears throat> but notice what it's based on, verse 4. How did he grant to us this divine power that's able to call you to this really high bar? How does he grant it to you? By his precious and very great promises, so that through those promises, you can be a partaker of divine nature. See, not through performances, but through promises. You might think, I don't know if I can live up to a, a bar of excellence. I haven't been around Scripture very long. It's hard for me to read the Bible for a long time. I just went to a men's retreat, and they're passing out John Calvin books, and I'm like, ah, I just feel like, ah. That's fine. You can be in the shallow end growing, and I can guarantee you every person next to you here feels like they're in the shallow end. None of us are like, oh, I'm so glad I'm swimming in such deep water. I'm so profound now. Every single time I, I talk with those pastors at the men's retreat or sitting in conversation, pretty much every single time I've got to pull out my Evernote and be like, look up such and such book, never heard of it. I mean, I haven't read everything. I'm constantly learning. And so this is not something that is a finished process, but he is, it is something that is a process that has begun. You have entered into it, and God's promises are that you will get through it. And so if we believe that we're, we're not able to make it as a Christian, we're not able to perform as Christians, we can't really be excellent Christians, you're basically calling God a liar. I mean, you're not saying that, but in, in actuality, God's promises are that you can partake in divine nature to the point of excellence. And if we don't believe that promise, it's like when your dad would tell you, I'm sorry I was supposed to take you to the playground. I know I promised you, but I can't. Uh, may not be your dad's fault, and you might have to go back to your toddler age and like forgive him or something, you know? I don't want to sound like a psychologist, but it could have been like your dad was just flaky, or it could have been your dad had work, 
it was out of his control or whatever, but the reason why God is like that is God doesn't have a boss. He doesn't have a schedule that he's got to check and run by anybody else. If God says, I promise this, he delivers on the promise. And God's promise is, I will make you excellent. I will give you the power you need to be excellent and glorious as a Christian. You don't have to stay down here in the mud, playing around, struggling with the same sin for 15 years. Believing in your mind that I just, I just don't have what it takes. Yes, you do. And God has promised to give you what you need to break out of it. Praise God. You've escaped from corruption that is in the world that is because of sinful desire. That is behind you. Do you still struggle with sinful desires? Yes, but key word, struggle. Struggle means fight. And too many of us are like, oh, I struggle with this sin. And really, you don't mean the dictionary definition of struggle, you mean I'm wrapped up in this sin, I am conquered by this sin, I don't fight this sin, I'm embroiled in this sin, that would be a better definition of what we sometimes mean. But I struggle with this sin means this, this sin used to beat the snot out of me, and now I, now I, now I win very often, I'm, I'm still growing in it. But see, that's struggle, that's fight, and that's clinging to God's promises that you can conquer to the point where that bully doesn't come knocking anymore. We should be Christians that talk about past vices. We shouldn't be sharing the same things now that we did in growth group 10 years ago. Man, at some point we got to be like, hey, man, still? <laughs> beat it. Not by your own strength. Maybe that's why you haven't beat it yet. But understand that God has granted you. It starts with belief, believing that God has promised to grant you what it takes to beat it and to leave those sinful desires behind, to crush them, move beyond them, and to grow. And I love how he doesn't just leave it in negativity, but he wants to push you into the positive. Not just dwelling on the don't do's, I want you to dwell on the do's. Verse 5, because this is true, and because it's possible, and it's possible because he's given us these promises, for this very reason, verse 5, make every effort to supplement, add to your faith. And look at this list with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self control, and self control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. I don't think this is an exhaustive list. We can probably think of Christian qualities that aren't in the list. Some of these things overlap with one another. And I don't think it's a step-by-step -step process. I don't think he's saying the first thing you need to get is this, and then after that you can graduate to the school of this, and then once you get that, now you can attain that. This isn't like Taekwondo, right? Like and once you get the yellow belt, then you get the orange, and then stacking things on top of each other. Like you don't have to worry about love until you're a real mature Christian. A beginning Christian, just worry about... <laughs> Just worry about virtue, forget love. Well, how different is virtue than love? They overlap because he's not giving you step, a step-by-step. Step. He's giving you just a sort of a run-on sentence of stacking phrases of this is what it looks like and this is what it looks like and add this and add this and add this. It's one big recipe of a bunch of ingredients. And he's not necessarily giving you every single ingredient, but he's giving you a snapshot of what it looks like to conquer ungodliness, corruption, sinful desires, and live in a way that is excellent. And it's because it's been done for you, it's because you have promises that you make 
every effort to add to your faith. That might be a new concept to you. I thought you either have faith or you don't have faith. How do you add to faith? Yes, we all have a faith of equal standing, but it's still a faith that grows and matures. That's all over the Bible. That's not just Peter being weird. You grow as a Christian. I mean, you, you, like I said, you know, we're, we're all in the shallow end, moving toward deeper things. That's, that's the normal Christian life. That is Christian growth. So he doesn't mean that your faith is lacking. He just told you in, the, in verse 1, you have a faith of equal standing. Your faith is sufficient, equal standing, but that doesn't mean it just stays there. It's supposed to grow, it's supposed to mature, and it's your responsibility to supplement it, add to it, because of the promises. So in Peter's mind, the fact that God has promised to do something in you doesn't mean you can relax and not do it. They don't contradict. One produces the other. He promised to do something in you, so do it. We don't don't have to sit there and be like, what are the theological implications of he did it, but I do it, but he did it. He's granted you the power to do it. That means you have no excuse not to do it. That means get to work. And I'm down for theological conversations that don't get paralysis by analysis. I don't get the paradox. I guess I'll go sin. Like, just get to work. We'll figure out the paradox later. You know, we'll unpack that. But get to work. You know what virtue looks like? Go do virtuous things. And you know that thing that you're stuck in and broiled in is not virtuous? You can conquer that. Because of those promises and because we are given... Uh, we're, we've become partakers of the divine nature. And so I love how he emphasizes effort. He is not a preacher that is afraid to tell you to work, to stop doing, to start doing. And he's not just trying to spank them like, come on, you lazy people. He's trying to encourage them and say, you have the power, so let's do it. Let's do it. And add this and add that. So you think of these things, you, you know, virtue, add knowledge. You, know, you might feel like, I don't even know one Bible verse. All right, how about this week? Learn one. Just take one Bible. How about a short one? Google shortest verse in the Bible and just do that one. That's fine. It's powerful. It's powerful. Jesus is a man. He knows how to grieve, and he even grieves something that he's about to fix. What does it mean Jesus wept? It's not a throwaway verse. Memorize that. It's only a couple words. Dwell on it. Chew on it. Think about it. Think about it next time you lament something, grieve something. How Jesus simultaneously is going to fix something, but still takes the time to enter into the grief of the moment. I mean, that's... Then take a little bit of longer verse next week, right? And, And add knowledge. Understand what they're saying. Understand what the verses are. Try a different translation. Try an app that reads it to you. Maybe it's better for you to hear it than see it. Fine. You're in the car, put it on, you know, put it on your playlist and listen to some verses. But grow in that knowledge. Knowledge on top of virtue, self-control. You should be able to control yourself more tomorrow than you did yesterday. You couldn't control yourself as much yesterday. Now you can control yourself a little more. Congratulations, that's the Christian walk steadfastness, staying there, even when it's tough, even when it's difficult. Godliness, well, this is all godliness, right? Yes, growing all of it. Brotherly affection, the word there is literally Philadelphia. 
grow in Philadelphia. Right? That doesn't mean go to the place called Philadelphia. Brotherly love. It's this familial affection. How is Philadelphia different than love in general? Well, it's not. Like I said, it's not a list of separate things. It's a description of one big thing that is partaking in divine nature. All these qualities connect to one another. But I think the reason why he stuck brotherly love in there is to help remind you that, hey, we're in this together. There's a love that goes to enemy. There's a love that goes to forgiving people that, you know, don't deserve it and all of that. But there's a love that is specific to the Christian community that binds us together as brothers and sisters. And so it's reminding like, hey, you don't just do these qualities on your own. We're in this together. We march in this together. Going back to the faith of equal standing, right? Sometimes you're afraid to confess something to another brother or sister in the church when you know you really need help. And the reason why you're afraid is like they're this upper tier Christian and you feel ashamed to admit that you're in this lower tier. No, they're not. You just don't know the stuff in their life that makes them the same tier. (laughs) And if you're talking to a mature Christian, they're not going to be like, I'm sorry you're not on my level. I don't know anybody in CFC that I know of. Let me know. Call them out. No. But a mature Christian is going to be like, I know. I know. I am there or I've been there or I was in something similar. They're going to be honest. And so this brotherly affection brings us into this whole thing together so that we're not just running this race on our own. It's not a marathon. It's a team sprint. And he wants you to be diligent in this effort. Verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some people will just take just that one verse by itself and say, see, if you live this certain way, if you, if you have these qualities, then you know Jesus. That's how you get to know Jesus. That's how you get to make it to heaven. Look, how, look I'll skip to verse 11. We read it anyway. For in this there will be richly provided for you an entrance. So they'll say, see, if you live in these qualities, then you get entrance. If you don't live in these qualities, then you don't get entrance. That's kind of true, but not in a performing way. So it's false to say entrance into the kingdom is based on performance, period. That's false, my performance. But it's also false to say entrance into the kingdom is not based on performance at all. That's not true. Here's the accurate way to say it. Entrance into the kingdom is based on my performance, and my performance is based on the promises of God. Jesus didn't save you so you can just sit there in your sin. He saved you unto something. And proof of Jesus' saving power in your life is not you saying, when I was eight years old, I said this prayer. That's not proof. That's a part of your testimony. That's a part of your story. But is it real? Well, you think of the, uh, the Apostle James, he lives in the show-me state, right? You could, you could talk all this, as I, I think of that, that whole story, why Missouri is called the show-me state, supposedly it's based on some congressman who's like, I'm not like the Republicans with all the frothy eloquence, I'm a Democrat, and you need to show me, right? And so the show-me state, that kind of stuck, all this talk, all this rhetoric, I want to see it. And that's all James is about. James is like, hey, show me your faith. He's not saying instead of faith, something else. Peter's the same thing. Paul's the same thing. 
How do you know you're saved? How do you know that the salvation that God has afforded to you is an effective salvation, a salvation that actually works? How do we know that God's promises haven't failed? How do we know that God's divine power actually works? Well, you don't just say you're plugged in. You plug it in and turn on the device and see what that device can now do because it's plugged in. That doesn't mean the device has its own power. It's getting power from somewhere else. So your entrance into the kingdom is based completely on God's grace, but that grace does something in you, and it looks like something. So there's two categories of people that should receive a warning from this. One is maybe you were told that you're a Christian because around the campfire you joined in a prayer. At your bedside you followed or repeated a prayer after your grandmother. That could be conversion, but it might not be. Ever since you were 8, 12, whenever that time was, have you grown? Are you steadfast? Would anybody around you describe you as virtuous? I mean, not perfect, but are these qualities yours, see? And if you're not growing in those, either you're not in this thing at all, or, he says, you might be forgetful. Verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. Not blind in an unsaved sense, because he says, having forgotten that he was, he was cleansed from his former sins. So there's a category of Christians just being forgetful right now, and you need a reminder. It's not that you need to get saved, but you need a, a kind of a kick in the pants and a reminder and a shove, like, hey, you were cleansed. Stop hanging around in that mud. That, that was washed off. Be clean now. Live like a clean person. Grow into it. And so he wants to remind them, hey, you have been given something. You've been brought out of that darkness you can march through this wilderness. You can make it because God has given you what it takes to make it. And he says in verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. He said, make every effort. Now he's saying, be diligent to do what? Well, not to earn your calling. To confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. There is a category of people who turn out to be blind after all. Maybe they never really did escape darkness. But he's saying, but if you practice these qualities and you're diligent and you stick to it, then you will confirm your calling and election. Not earn your calling and election. When you use the word confirm today, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is confirm a doctor's appointment. I was asking my wife earlier, she's like, uh, what? I was like, first thing that comes to your mind, she's like, confirm a reservation. I go, okay. You confirm something that's already a reality. You don't confirm something that's not yet a reality. You already have election, and how you live as a Christian confirms that you have the election. You make sure that it's there. Not earning it, not bringing it into existence, but Again, show me. Show me what you're doing. And the great promise of this is possible. It's possible to live like that. You don't have to live stuck. You don't have to live defeated. In fact, you shouldn't. And if you feel a little tired, you feel a little apathetic, God will grant you what you need, the energy and the power that you need to be diligent 
and make every effort so that our diligence confirms our election. Effort doesn't get you election, but election gets you effort. If you're a part of God's elect, there's effort in there. Tap into it. Tap into it, and let's not make excuses. Let's not say, well, my dad, my granddad. Let's grow, because God has given us what it takes to grow. Find out what that is for you. Find out the thing that you're stuck in. Defeat it. Kill it. Now. Don't wait till next year. Let's get 2020 behind us. Do it now. <laughs> Do it now. Kill it. And find those things that are real positive, those qualities that you want to grow into. You know, I'm not very steadfast. Grow in that. Add that to your faith. And understand God has promised to give you what it takes to become that kind of person. If this list doesn't match you today, it can match you. Trust Christ and trust that God through Christ gives you what you need to be a mature, effective, diligent, every effort Christian. Let's pray together.